Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Where will each new chapter take you? June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. On top of solving the mystery, you also get the fun opportunity to customize your very own luxurious estate island. You can really let your imagination run wild. You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. I enjoyed June's journey as part of my evening wind-down routine, and I'm sure you will too. It's fun, and it's great if you're looking for a good mystery. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Have you ever seriously pissed off your in-laws? A couple of years ago, I started investigating a murder in my wife's family. Why would I do something so stupid? Well, partly because I've come to suspect that the woman who was killed is haunting the house I grew up in. There was a weight on the beard like somebody was in it. I woke up because my bed was shaking. So it would be like, shake, 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 shake. But mainly because I think someone in the family might have got away with murder. And my in-laws, well, they're not exactly thrilled about it. You are deconstructing an age-old story. We're going to be more traumatized by this podcast than we were about the murder, I'll tell you that. There is going to be blowback. I'm Tristan Redman, and from Wandering in Pineapple Street Studios, this is Ghost Story, a podcast about the things that come back to haunt us. Follow Ghost Story on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Ghost Story ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Please note that this episode contains depictions of violence that some people may find disturbing. On a bustling city day, a shadowy team of government agents stormed into a towering hotel and headed for a room on the 33rd floor. They left with what were said to be 80 trunks of papers and personal belongings of the embattled scientist who had lived inside. No, this wasn't Dr. Yuji Malov they'd raided. It was Nikola Tesla the influential inventor he'd long admired, and the one whose mysterious end foreshadowed his own. I discovered this connection between Malov and Tesla one day when I was leafing through Malov's charts on cold fusion and his diatribes against MIT, and I landed on this line that he had once written. He was a visionary scientific genius not a savvy, cutthroat businessman. In the late 1800s, long before Elon Musk slapped his name on a car, Tesla pioneered the alternating current. That's the form of electricity that powers just about everything you plug into a wall socket. 
and his research into X-ray technology, radio, and wireless communications has radically transformed modern life. Maloff saw himself not only in Tesla's ambitions, but his struggles. Tesla was a foreboding example of what happens when a scientist goes too far off into the fringe. In the last decade of Tesla's life, he was broke, living out of hotels and making seemingly outrageous claims about the same thing as Malov, free energy. Back in 1932, Tesla claimed he'd invented a motor that ran on cosmic rays. Cosmic rays, he said, that represented an infinite form of energy, which he could tap with an inexpensive device of his own making. More ominously, he detailed plans for a particle beam super weapon, something now commonly referred to as Tesla's death ray. But it wasn't just Tesla's free energy inventions that captivated Malov. It was the ongoing mystery around his death. On January 8th, 1943, Tesla was found dead in his room in the New Yorker Hotel, 33 floors above the busy streets of Manhattan. After the government raid, it would take the family ages to finally get the stuff back. And when they did, supposedly 20 trunks of Tesla's things were missing. And the content and the fate of them fuels conspiracy theories to this day. Was the government after Tesla's death ray? Or maybe they were out to snuff any source of free energy before it could be unleashed. How far were they willing to go? If there was a Mount Rushmore of free energy warriors who died mysteriously, Tesla is the most notable. But Dr. Malov's journey into the fringe of cold fusion science put him on a collision course with a second man on the monument. From Q-Code and Faceplant, in association with No Smiling, I'm David Kushner, and this is Crime Waves, Cold Truth. This is episode three, Infinite Energy. In his search for answers about cold fusion, Dr. Malov began traveling far and wide. One early expedition led to Santa Fe, just a short drive from the U.S. Department of Energy's Los Alamos National Lab, the once top secret facility where the first nuclear bomb was created under the watchful eye of J. Robert Oppenheimer. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. But Malov wasn't there to inspect the federal government's storied lab. He was there to record a video in a wood shop. Under the blinding New Mexico sun, Dr. Malov pulled up to a mostly finished house adorned with stained glass overlooking the majestic Rio Grande Valley. The wood shop was on the lower level and Malov made a beeline for it, lugging his video equipment through the door, eager to see what was inside. This wasn't an ordinary basement hobby shop, and it was obvious the moment Dr. Malov hit record and began looking around. I had no idea whatever happened to that video, but we shared a lot of information. 
Dr. Edmund Storms is a towering man with a full head of white hair to match his tightly cropped beard. He used that wood shop to build his house. And then once construction was almost complete, he converted part of that wood shop into his very own cold fusion lab. And Storms wasn't just anybody. A few months earlier, he was working as a nuclear chemist at Los Alamos. He wasn't building bombs though. Dr. Storms was trying to figure out how to make space exploration possible with nuclear power. He'd been in the lab for more than 30 years and surprising to no one, designing a nuclear reactor for use in space is pretty hard. So he and other scientists at Los Alamos were very interested in the prospects of cold fusion to make this easier. They began their research right away. Most of the efforts failed to replicate what Ponzo Fleischmann claimed, but a few succeeded and I was one of the ones that succeeded. Well, this got me hooked. There was just one problem though. Officially, the US government believed cold fusion was dead. The Department of Energy had squashed all cold fusion research and shut down Storms' experiments completely for reasons Storms believed went all the way to the top. Of course, the President of the United States was an oil man. It didn't take a very high intelligence to know that if cold fusion were real, we no longer would need oil. And so the easiest way is to kill it, the baby before it has a chance to threaten you. All kinds of techniques were used. I mean, this was a full court press from the government's point of view to kill this as quickly as possible. But Dr. Storms felt undeterred. He'd made an agreement with his group leader at Los Alamos to quietly keep experimenting on cold fusion as long as he did his other work. And even though he had positive results, making them occur on demand was difficult. You had to be really lucky. However, those people who were lucky made it happen without any ambiguity at all. But because this myth was created denying reality and attributing it to errors and bad science, that affected how people thought about the field even today. To Dr. Storms, the strongest skeptics were physicists. Physicists who came into the debate with their own bias because they believed cold fusion had to basically work in the same way as hot fusion. And because nuclear energy is a category that physicists believe they controlled, they weren't going to let two chemists like Pons and Fleischmann tell them otherwise. Dr. Storms was also a chemist though, so he wasn't restricted by the close-minded approach that he saw in some other physicists. He accepted that he was observing something that just couldn't be explained yet. So he continued his research at Los Alamos discreetly until he could explain it himself. And eventually he built an apparatus to measure heat in a chemical reaction. We very early on had a replication that would have stood objective evaluation. Well, I, at that time, was fairly naive, fairly confident that evidence eventually would be acknowledged and we would go on our way to develop this as a useful source of energy. That turned out not to be the case. In the fall of 1991, a few months after Dr. Malov resigned from MIT, 
Dr. Storms' experiments came to an abrupt end. The DOE came in and discovered that we were doing unauthorized work and shut it all down. And I was close enough to retirement. I just said, okay, enough of this. I'm out of here. In October 1991, Dr. Storms retired after 36 years with Los Alamos to pursue cold fusion independently. But others in the field didn't have such an easy exit. When scientists and researchers stood up for cold fusion, sometimes they did suffer real consequences, and this was particularly true about Pons and Fleischmann. Pons and Fleischmann paid an enormous price for this. I mean, that, that's the great sadness, the great sin of these skeptics. What they did to Pons and Fleischmann was just unforgivable. Their kids at school were picked on on the basis of their parents being incompetent, according to the skeptics. Both Pons and Fleischmann eventually left the country altogether to conduct their work in Europe. Pons even gave up his U.S. citizenship, but others couldn't take that risk. Once they denied conventional financing for cold fusion, many of the people who had the intelligence, the knowledge to solve this problem could not do that because most everybody in science needs a job. They could not afford to quit. Dr. Storms set out on his own, moving to Santa Fe and building that house with the Cold Fusion Lab to conduct his own research. And that research eventually gained support from NASA. I mean, this became an obsession just like it became an obsession with Eugene Malov. I mean, it was the ideal source of energy. Our problems with global warming would have been much less severe. So the stakes were very high and the choice that was made by the governments has incredible consequences that are not fully understood at this time. With MIT far in the rearview mirror, Dr. Malov was committed to making cold fusion his career. Much like Dr. Storms, Malov planned to work as a consultant for corporations and investment firms who were doing research and development in cold fusion. I remember going up into his office and there were just always like a lot of excitement and, and heated discussions while he was on the phone. You know, he'd be on the phone for hours. Kim Woodard was just a teenager when her dad left MIT. At their home in Bow, New Hampshire, her dad kept busy trying to keep the conversation around cold fusion alive. As a teenage girl, I was kind of annoyed because it's like, oh, here goes dad again talking about cold fusion. Someone would say, you know, Gene, what's going on in cold fusion? And then it would just create a big discussion. He almost didn't talk about anything else. Like it was just all consuming. Cold fusion hadn't just taken over his life. It was taking over their house too. I remember there being a tank and tubes. Imagine it. A snowy day in the middle of rural New Hampshire, cars pulling up on a little residential street, and all these scruffy amateur scientists hauling in their homemade equipment right into Malov's house. He was working on just trying to recreate what Pons and Fleischmann had done. We had people in our basement coming in doing experiments. Malov knew that in order to keep Cold Fusion alive, he couldn't be in this fight alone. He had to create a community, some kind of hub, a place for the believers, the dreamers, and the experimenters. So he turned his basement into a makeshift lab, inviting over friends, colleagues, and anyone who wanted to run their own Cold Fusion experiments. All day and all night. You know, there was a guy named Jeff. He was like living in our basement for a while. And as a teenage girl, I was like, 
there's Jeff. It's weird that he's like in our basement. And I would go downstairs and just kind of look and see like, what, where is he sleeping? And he's just sleeping on a mattress down there. And I'm just kind of like, all right, like <laughs> to each their own. <laughs> when you asked me, what does the lab look like? I have this picture of the different equipment, <laughs> you know, like a schematic or something. I don't know what the room looks like. Who cares what the room looks like? And then there was Jed, Jed Rothwell. He was a computer programmer, data analyst, science enthusiast, and an obsessive archivist from Georgia. His disheveled sandy hair, wire-rimmed glasses, and collection of wrinkled short-sleeved button-up shirts would give that away immediately. Have you been in a physics laboratory? Well, it's, it's a big fat mess. It's utter chaos is what it is. Malov's basement was a mess of half-assembled machines under aggressive fluorescent lights. So you have this shelf after shelf after shelf of garbage, tools from the 1950s and 60s and 80s. There were computer monitors stacked on top of each other. One of which was always broken. Spare parts everywhere. Bits and pieces of stuff. You throw it away, a week later you need it. And wires, lots of wires. You never know what you need. And whenever you need to do a new experiment, you take apart an old machine, you pull out the parts you need, and you assemble something new. That's how you do experiments, is you get a whole bunch of, of stuff uh, and you put it together and make it work. After reading Fire From Ice early on, Jed had reached out to Malov and they'd become fast friends. He's my tribe. We, we got along very well. We, we both, well, what's the expression? To the person who has only a hammer, all problems look like a nail. He and I both would say something like, oh, I could fix that problem. Global warming is not so difficult to fix. You just do this and this and this. People like me have a bad habit of reducing everything to a, something you can fix with technology. That's what Jed and Dr. Malov had hoped to do, create a viable technology that would modernize cold fusion. Venturing into the unknown was a little bit risky in a few ways. For one, the experiments could be dangerous. Even though hazards were rare, a scientist at a lab in California had actually been killed when a fusion cell exploded. Secondly, money for experiments was scarce. We were constantly scheming and coming up with things and trying to find funding for something. I funded several experiments myself out of my own pocket, $20,000 to $40,000. Otherwise, it wouldn't have happened at all. When Jed was funding these projects, that was just to buy the materials. We didn't pay ourselves for the, for the work. Good heavens, no. Eugene was working on other jobs and he had to do it in the evenings and nights. Well, of course, he had to feed his family. I felt bad for him, but it was a, it's a terrible shame. But what else could Malov do? The stakes were huge. They both knew it. Every time I read about these terrible wars over oil, things like that, I'm thinking to myself, this is all unnecessary. We don't have to do any of this. All of these terrible crises we're facing, it could easily eliminate the problem of global warming. We can eliminate that overnight practically with cold fusion. The world needed cold fusion and cold fusion needed Malov. It would only become a reality if there were people willing to risk everything to prove that it was real. Crime Wave's Cold Truth is sponsored by BetterHelp. This time of year can be a lot to handle. With less daylight and the changing weather, you might get some seasonal blues. And even if you love the holidays, there's plenty of stress involved. All the planning, the travel, the family. So you know it's natural to feel some anxiety or sadness as the year comes to a close. 
but adding something new and something positive to your life can help counteract some of those feelings, like therapy. When there's so much going on, therapy can give you the tools to manage it all, whether that involves coping skills, learning how to set boundaries, or just understanding how to take a moment when the stress piles up and stay centered. If you're thinking about therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's an online solution, so it's incredibly convenient. And since you don't have to go to an office, you get extra flexibility. It's easy to get started, too. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you need a new one, that's no problem either. You can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com CWCT to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash C-W-C-T. Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Where will each new chapter take you? June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. On top of solving the mystery, you also get the fun opportunity to customize your very own luxurious estate island. You can really let your imagination run wild. You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. I enjoyed June's journey as part of my evening wind-down routine, and I'm sure you will too. It's fun, and it's great if you're looking for a good mystery. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. As Dr. Malov's devotion to cold fusion continued consuming him, his family wondered what it all meant for them. After all, there was Malov, his wife, and two teenagers, and they all had to live. His wife of 21 years, Joanne, taught music, so she hoped her husband wouldn't be out of work for long. She was very supportive, but also just very concerned, you know, about what him leaving like a full-time job meant for the family. And I was about to go to hopefully go to college. Eventually, Maloff found himself in a very different place than the halls of MIT. A high school classroom in his tiny lakeside town of 7,500 people. Day in and day out, he'd stand there just staring at the bored faces of the kids from behind his desk. He just felt really frustrated with that job. Until Cold Fusion was paying the bills, Dr. Malov had to keep a day job to support his family, and it was dismal. While he was passionate about science, the kids could have cared less, you know, and that frustrated him. So that wasn't a great place for him to be. Malov could have gone back to engineering, but he'd left that behind for science writing nearly 10 years earlier. So he decided that in addition to Cold Fusion consulting, he could also write about Cold Fusion. But being able to do that 
meant, you know, to my mom, maybe some financial hardships on the family in that if he wasn't paid to do it, you know, like, it's fine if you want to do this, but you still have to make income. So he did a lot of other jobs while satisfying my mom's desire for him to still have an income. There was a lot of stress during that time. Dr. Maloff thought he could hack it. He just needed to continue rallying support for Cold Fusion. And eventually he figured the money would come to fund his projects. He had a plan, shoot for the stars. And he picked one of the biggest stars in his universe. On New Year's Day, 1992, in the seaside town of Colombo, Sri Lanka, a bald man in his 70s sat at his desk in his library, reading a letter from Dr. Eugene Malov. Being the open-minded scientist that you are, perhaps it's not too late to disabuse you of doubts you might have acquired from the media regarding cold fusion. The open-minded scientist reading the letter was one of Dr. Malov's biggest heroes, someone who embraced and explored the possibilities of the universe. He was famed for his science fiction novels like Childhood's End and The Fountains of Paradise. But most people knew him from his classic with Stanley Kubrick. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. 2001, A Space Odyssey. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. It was Arthur C. Clarke. Malov knew just what to dangle in his letter in hopes of convincing one of the world's greatest icons in science to get behind Cold Fusion. Clark read on. Needless to say, if Cold Fusion is real, as I am convinced it is, the phenomenon may have a dramatic impact on spaceflight. Malov asked Clark if he would sign a petition that would be given to the House of Representatives in Washington. This wasn't just about Clark's star power. He was a very credible futurist who made many predictions that sounded kind of crazy at the time and later turned out to be shockingly on point. We can be in instant contact with each other, wherever we may be. Men will no longer commute. They will communicate. If Clark agreed, it could boost the credibility of cold fusion into the mainstream. And as Clark continued to read, he thought to himself, how curious, and sat down at his typewriter to respond. A few days later, Malov heard his fax machine ring in the basement. He saw a letter unfurl from Arthur C. Clarke himself. And this is what it said. You may not know, but I've been interested in cold fusion for a long time. By an odd coincidence, see this fax I've just sent to my agent. It turned out that the very day Malov's letter had arrived, Clarke had sent a fax to his own agent about Dr. Malov's book, Fire From Ice. Clark had been incensed by what he called the cold fusion caper. The wholesale rejection of this idea by mainstream science, it went against everything that he believed in. So he eagerly signed Malov's petition. This was just the start of what Malov hoped would be a turning point for cold fusion. Now it had been six months since Malov had resigned from MIT. He had a basement full of believers coming in and out of his house as his wife and kids watched TV upstairs. He was banking everything on this belief that cold fusion was real. His plans 
had to work. He was putting his family on the line, taking some extraordinary risks, and he was betting it on this idea of starting his own magazine. And this is what he was pitching to Clark. He was trying to rally true believers. Clark agreed to put up some funding for Dr. Malov's project. This was a huge deal, and it would be a bellwether of the support to come. This was thanks to the unrelenting campaign that Malov had waged to keep the cold fusion conversation going in any way he could. Dr. Malov would talk to anyone who was out there, anyone who would listen. The problem was not everyone was to be trusted. Cold fusion, like all nascent science, like all new discoveries, attracts many strange people. It's natural. When things are not well understood and not well known and no one knows what you can do with it, you get a lot of creative people and you also get a lot of people who are just plain nuts. Gene was very open-minded, I think at times, to my taste, too open-minded. He was too willing to listen to some of these other really far-out claims. It's 1986, Newark, and Michael Morrison is offered the opportunity of a lifetime. A new job, a fresh start with a secure future as a cop. But Mike has no idea he's about to join what he calls the biggest gang in America. I'm Saren Jones, and this is Black and Blue Behind the Badge, a story about what happens when you have to pick a side. Follow Black and Blue Behind the Badge on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you want to hear something spooky? Some monster was standing there. It reminded me of Bigfoot. In walks a tall, gray alien. One of the teenage boys started to exhibit signs of textbook demonic possession. I'm Derek Hayes, host of Monsters Among Us podcast. This pure all-white entity staring straight at me. Where there should have been eye sockets, there weren't. Monsters Among Us is an anthology of real paranormal stories told by real witnesses. I never really believed in this Loch Ness Monster nonsense, but something very snake-like lifted its head out of the water. A giant black triangle. It was so big that it blotted out the stars. And I saw what looked like a huge monster. I could see the outline of hair. New episodes of Monsters Among Us drop every Thursday. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Somehow I had lost eight whole hours. Dr. Malov knew the solution to modernizing cold fusion was out there. He just had to find it. It wasn't unusual for him to jump in his car and drive dozens or even hundreds of miles to check out someone's invention. And there was one that he was particularly eager to see. It was created by a self-taught inventor in Grove City, Ohio. So Malov, along with a grad student, hopped in his car and took a road trip to the Columbus suburb, 750 miles away. When they arrived, they pulled up to a boxy two-story white house and met the inventor they had come so far to see. When new technology comes in existence, there's a great uh, resistance to it because it can affect a lot of economic factors. Stanley Meyer was six foot three with serious eyes and a full head of silver hair. He was eccentric, to say the least, and fervently religious. His favorite saying was, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. But Malov and his assistant hadn't come all this way for that. What Malov wanted to see 
was in Meyer's garage. He'd heard much about it from the media attention it was getting. This is no ordinary car. It's a dream come true. A car that runs on a cheap, safe fuel that's in limitless supply. Inside the small garage was a little red dune buggy. Painted on the side was an American flag with the words, Praise the Lord, water-powered car. And allegedly, this was the world's first water-powered car that actually worked. The car can be run on any form of natural water. You can use rainwater, well water, ocean water, and uh, if you don't have ocean water available, you can go ahead and use snow. Meyer said his invention was a kind of perpetual motion machine. It could break the water down into hydrogen and oxygen with minimal energy and burn the hydrogen as fuel. This dune buggy uh, operates around 65 miles per hour on around 60 miles per gallon of water. It's very efficient. Efficient indeed. Meyer demonstrated for Malov and the student what looked like a small input power that produced copious hydrogen-oxygen gas. Problem was, if the water car worked the way Stan Meyer said it did, it would violate a couple of the essential laws of thermodynamics. Still, Malov was keeping an open mind. He asked if he could test the power ratio himself. I made it clear that we didn't need to look inside his black box of equipment. We just wanted to see the results. Still, Meyer flat out refused. Malov was already put off, but things escalated from there. When Meyer slipped out, Malov's student began poking around the workshop. Gene's friend, soft-spoken graduate student guy, went over and picked up something and was looking at it. And Meyer came back and got just terribly angry that he had touched anything. And as I think Gene said he, Meyer picked up a bottle or something and threw him at the guy. This poor kid who, was, who didn't know what to, I mean, it was just awful. He was just a very, very paranoid, angry individual. Dr. Malov left incredibly suspicious of Meyer, but Meyer continued to get attention for his invention. He claimed he was designing kits that could be attached to conventional engines that a New York millionaire was testing in a secret lab. He even claimed to have an admiral from the British Navy interested. Malov just continued to press Meyer for answers. We got pretty annoyed after being unable to, or should I say not allowed to, actually test any of Meyer's claims. So Malov thought he'd try one last time to confront Meyer. He headed for Colorado and descended upon a Denver Marriott where Meyer was speaking to a room of free energy devotees. Uh, thank you very much and thank you for coming this morning. The mighty Meyer, wearing a taupe suit, spoke under a projection screen that read the birth of new technology. Can you uh, turn on the slides? Dr. Malov eagerly waited for the hour-long talk to end. He sat there watching as Meyer showed the audience all of these busy charts about his invention. And then finally, when it was over, Malov had his moment. Any questions? Yes. Yes, I, I do remember you. Dr. Malhoff stood up and basically said, Stan, remember me? I tried to verify your work and you wouldn't let me. I would like to have a 
laboratory. I'd be delighted to have my own lab and all my connections at companies, big and small. Get your technology certified. We'll shout it from the mountains if you just do one thing. Just let us test it. We'll prove to the world that your technology works if we see that it does what you say it does. Okay, uh, I'll answer it in this way. Uh, there are many loopholes in the both the U.S. patent law and the international patent laws. Meyer couldn't purse his lips any longer. He grabbed the mic and leaned in. Under the international patent laws, that if you release any of your work out in the public domain, you can receive a statutory blockage in receiving your patents. Meyer claimed, falsely, I might add, that he would lose his patent rights if he released any incomplete information or device before it was ready. You know, like his water-fueled dune buggy. Many, many governmental and university laboratories have confirmed uh, the viability of the water fuel cell technology. So it has been confirmed in many different testing. Now, prove it, Malov said. Where are the numbers? Yeah, I understand. I understand. But I'm not willing to violate uh, my uh, development rights as we release it out into the public domain. Then you can do all the testing you so desire. More excuses. Always more excuses. Suffice it to say, the answer was no. You can't test it. But Malov was just one of Meyer's skeptics. Meyer ended up getting sued for fraud by a couple investors who claimed he'd swindled them. Meyer lost the case, though he remained adamant that it was a sham. Meyer said this lawsuit, and other alleged attacks like it, were thanks to some vague conspiracies he loved to blame for all his woes. Many times over the last decade, uh, I have been offered enormous amounts of money to simply sell out or to sit on it. My life has been uh, threatened uh, many times. Uh, of course, I happen to believe in the power of angels. And if I don't believe in the power of angels, I don't believe I'll be around here too long. One had the impression that he really believed that there were conspiracies against him. And that might have been enough to relegate Meyer to obscurity, except for what happened a few months after his public showdown with Malov. Stan Meyer and his twin brother Stephen were sitting down to a meal with two Belgian investors at a Cracker Barrel restaurant in Ohio. The Belgians were apparently ready to fund more research into Meyer's water-fueled car. But according to Stephen, Stan took a sip of cranberry juice, then grabbed his neck and ran out into the parking lot. Stephen ran after him and found his brother on his knees, vomiting violently. What's wrong, Stephen asked. Meyer managed to choke out, they poisoned me. These were his dying words. And according to Stephen, when he told the Belgians what happened, they said nothing. As word of Meyer's death spread, suspicions started to grow that he was murdered for his work. Police heard all sorts of cloak and dagger theories from people mired in the free energy controversy. In their minds, Meyer had earned an eternal spot on the Mount Rushmore of free energy warriors. Malov did not buy it. 
but he did write an obituary for Meyer. I have absolutely no doubt today that Stanley Meyer was his own worst enemy. If, and a very big if, he discovered the technological process that he said he had, there is no way that a reasonable, straightforward marketing strategy would have failed to make his technology quickly spread worldwide. He could have become very influential and very rich. After a three-month investigation, the conclusions from the coroner about Stanley Meyer's cause of death finally came out. The report said it was a brain aneurysm. There was apparently no trace of any poison inside him. But the conspiracy surrounding Meyer's death lived on. He was not the only person in the free energy world who was said to have died under strange circumstances. And since Malov thought it was all nonsense, he certainly never guessed that he would become the next. There's some people that believe that he was murdered by big oil. You know, he was murdered by some French scientist. You can't begin to describe how angry he was. This is one of the major areas that we disagreed, and that disagreement became somewhat passionate. I think they're too stupid. <laughs> Honestly, they really are. They're incredibly stupid. That's coming up on Crime Waves, Cold Truth. From Q-Code and Faceplant, in association with No Smiling, this is episode three of eight of Crime Waves, Cold Truth. Cold Truth is hosted by me, David Kushner, and based on my article, The Coldest Case. The events in this series are true and actually happened, but some reenactment details are dramatized. Actor Jason Kravitz is the voice of Dr. Malov, and the dialogue is drawn from Malov's extensive writings and speeches. The series is written, reported, and produced by me, David Kushner, Heather Schrering, and Sean Cannon for No Smiling, and Graylin Brashear. Original music and sound design by John Eckhaus. Fact-checking by Rebecca Nelson. Additional writing by Rolf Potts. Managing producer is Daniel Rafe. Marketing lead is Ellie Kotopish. Executive produced by Stephen Canner, Jamie Schutz and me, David Kushner, for Faceplant, and Rob Herding and David Henning for Q-Code. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And tell your friends about us. The next episode will be out in a week. Don't miss it. Be sure to follow Crime Waves Cold Truth on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? 
Well, we dove deep into the Empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale, it's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now.